Have you ever watched the chairing ceremony during the, the National Eisteddfod? It's a ceremony which has its origins in uh, the days of Druids long ago. And the whole thing is, is really weird. It's very strange, but you can't help but uh, be captivated as you watch it. And there's one bit that, that fascinates me. Uh, these, these two uh, men in, in like robes. They've, they've got this massive sword, and uh, it's a real sword, and they, they unsheathe it above the, the winning poet's head. And uh, as they do that, they shout to the audience, Aois Hedoch, is there peace? Hedoch, the audience shouts in return, peace. Uh, and only when this ritual has been performed can the, the poet or the author sit in the special chair. What a strange thing to, to watch. Uh, why do they ask such a question? Is there peace? Well, on a small scale, they're asking whether there is peace among the crowd that is watching on with the decision that's made to decide on who's going to, to win the chair. But on a bigger scale, there's a question. Is there desire for peace among the people? We're all looking for peace in our lives. Is there peace in our world today? Now, we're not engaged in a, in a global war like generations before us have been, but we're surrounded by the reality of war and rumors of war. Uh, Ukraine and Russia are still fighting. Uh, Sudan is at war with itself. In fact, there are 32 countries currently involved in some sort of conflict. We don't hear about all of these uh, situations on the news. But away from the battlefront, there is also a peace that we lack in our own lives. There's personal struggles. There's battles with sin. There's disagreements within families and church. There's struggles at work or at school. So let me ask you this morning, is your life characterized by peace? Are we in harmony with the people around us? Is there a sense of satisfaction and contentment within ourselves? And as we read this, we see that Paul, if you've got the, the Bible in front of you, uh, and you've got that chapter... Uh, Paul has just told the Philippians to stand firm as they await Christ's return. And as they do so, he longs for them to have peace in every aspect of their lives. He wants there to be peace within the church. He wants there to be peace within their individual lives as they live for Christ. And he also wants them to live lives which are pure and righteous so they may be at peace with God, the God who calls himself the God of peace. So as we look at those first nine verses of chapter four of Philippians, uh, let's pray together that we would know something of the peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would be with us this morning. Help us to see our need for peace and that it only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, so as we look at these, these three areas, uh, we will see uh, Paul wants peace everywhere in life. Uh, so the first of these things 
peace among the church. Peace among the church. I remember there was a, a, a history lecture in my first year at university, uh, and I clearly wasn't very engaged with what we were listening to. And uh, so I started talking to my friend, and uh, the lecturer suddenly stopped talking. Stopped the lecture and uh, told us to stop talking, to be quiet. And uh, it was a huge lecture, all about 200 people were sat in there, and they all looked round to see who was causing this hold-up. And it was very embarrassing, and this is 10 or so years ago, and I still remember it well, my face burning up. Uh, it's been seared into my memory. Now, imagine not just being told off in front of a lecture theatre, but being told off in one of the books of the Bible being told off in the middle of one of Paul's letters, which is going to be read out in front of your whole church. And it's then going to be passed around the other churches in the area, and then it's going to be part of the scriptures for the next 2,000 years. And what Paul is doing is not, he's not trying to humiliate these two ladies. He's doing it with, with gentleness and a spirit of love. But he needs them to see how important it is for them to have peace. And these uh, women, they're called Euodia and Syntyche. They've been a, a great help to Paul in the past. Uh, they may have even been two of the ladies that were present the first time Paul visited Philippi. And they, this group of, of, of women met by the side of the river. And uh, a lady called Lydia was there and she became a Christian. Um, they may have been there from the very beginning of the church's life. And he says there in, in verse 3, if you've got your Bibles, uh, that they've labored side by side with me in the gospel together. He, he clearly values them dearly. But they've had some sort of disagreement, and we don't know what that disagreement was about. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Uh, but uh, we, we probably know that their argument was not just an unfortunate clash of personalities which could be ignored. It is affecting the witness of the gospel in the city. And when Christians disagree, it undermines the fact that we are promoting a gospel of peace, a gospel of patience and conciliation. And for those looking in, if all they see is infighting and disagreement, it hardly suggests that this is a place of grace and kindness, does it? So what is the answer? Not just for Euodia and Syntyche, because they've long died, and uh, this is not just about them, it's about the Christians that will read it afterwards. What are we to make when we disagree with other Christians? Well, it's there in, in verse 2, when he tells them to agree in the Lord. Not to uh, unite around anything trivial. Not to agree to disagree, because that's what we like doing best as British people, isn't it? Stiff upper lip. Um, not to be nice for the sake of being nice, but to agree in the Lord. And it links back to, um, to what Paul said in a few chapters before, when he uh, was talking about having the mind of Christ when he said, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have the mind of Christ Jesus. We don't just need the example of Jesus, as helpful as that may be. We need the empowerment of the Lord Jesus. We don't need an example, we need empowerment. And throughout this letter, you will see a certain phrase, in the Lord, or in Christ Jesus. I think I counted it uh, as I was preparing. I think it's 13 times across four chapters. And maybe you can do that this afternoon. Uh, See how many times it says, in the Lord, or in Christ Jesus. And it's a reminder that we cannot do any of the things required of Christians apart from Christ. We must be united to him. He is working in us and through us. And Paul is reminding these ladies that yes, he is calling them out. But he tells them that their names are in the book of life. These are Christian sisters who he dearly loves. It's a helpful reminder that for us to be a a witness to others that we need to be united It is clear when we read the Gospels, when we read the Scriptures, that if there is someone who frustrates you, if there is someone who has humiliated you, if there is someone who has angered you, who does things in a way which is utterly different to how you would do it, if you're unable to see eye to eye with them, you need to agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. And, and see too that the call is on the other members of the congregation too. Look at verse 3. Uh, the true companion that Paul speaks of. And for Clement and other fellow workers. We need to help others to agree too. And Paul uh, speaks of the importance of peace within the church. Relational peace. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. Do people inside or outside this church know you for how patient you are, for how long your fuse is, for how gentle your spirit is? Or do they tread on eggshells knowing that you could fly off the handle any second? Let us ask God to work in us as we interact with others. But secondly, uh, what about in our own lives? Uh, sometimes our, our church, we might get on great with everyone in church and there's no arguments here and it's, and it's wonderful. And you may have switched off for that first point because you know everyone likes you and you like everyone else. But sometimes our own lives are far from peace. In our, our own walk with the Lord, as we go from day to day, is there peace of heart and mind? Which leads us to our second point. Peace of heart and mind. Uh, Peace and joy are are intricately connected. And joy has been at the heart of this letter. And there's a key verse. A verse which can be used to sum up the whole book. Uh, And what does it say? If you look at verse 4. Does it say rejoice in the Lord every Sunday? Or does it say rejoice in the Lord when things are well? Does it say rejoice in the Lord when you're regularly praying and reading God's words? 
It doesn't say any of those things. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. It's not a call to rejoice sometimes. It's not a call to rejoice most of the time in the good times. It's a call to rejoice always. How is that possible? Well, because it's in the Lord. The Lord who is the same yesterday, today and forever. His goodness and His mercy does not fluctuate with our circumstances. Our feelings are important. The Bible doesn't ignore our feelings. Uh, Paul himself tells people to celebrate with those who celebrate and to cry with those who are crying. We're not to be emotionless robots who are totally unmoved by the nuances of everyday life. As we say, rejoice in the Lord always. Um, that's not how we're supposed to live. But as a, as a counter to that, we're not to be defined and dictated by how we feel. We must not let our feelings be the driver for all our decisions. We must be guided by what we know, not what we feel. We need to take this, uh, this advice and remember that it's written by a man who is under house arrest. He has been battered and bruised and betrayed and belittled in his ministry. If Paul were to find his hope in how he felt in his circumstances and his feelings, he would have abandoned it a long time ago. But he finds his joy outside of himself in Christ. So if we're to find joy, real joy, wonderful joy, that cannot be snatched away in an instant, then it's only by looking to Christ that we can find it. It's by abiding in him, by being united to him. Jesus spoke to his disciples on the night of his arrest. He said this to them, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants us to be joyful people. He wants his joy to be in us. So Paul seems to have these impossible challenges, doesn't he? He not only wants the believers in Philippi to rejoice always, but he also wants them to never worry. Uh, and those two things are seemingly impossible, aren't they? And they are impossible without Christ. If we're looking for peace in this transient world, then once again, we're going to be left ruined. We can't find peace here, can we? There are so many things that cause us to worry. Uh, mortgages, bills, uh, loneliness, the stresses of work, the opinions of your friends, exam results, future plans, uh, how you look, your health, moving house, tension in your marriage, past trauma, parents worrying about their children, uh, worrying about your own parents as they get older, all these things, things that are have come up in your week, I'm sure, this week already. Uh, so many things that can pull us in, in different directions, causing us to worry. And the word that we have for worry in the English language 
comes from the old English word for strangling. And that's exactly what worry does, doesn't it? It suffocates us. It grabs us. It squeezes out the joy from us. And these are all things which are out of our control. And yet you've given yourself the responsibility of thinking that you are in control of them. So of course you're going to panic. Of course you're going to sleep badly. But the Bible's clear teaching is that when it comes to worry, when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to fear, it is a wonderful indicator for us to what we hold most precious. And often the things that we are worrying about are the things that we are valuing above God. Our list of worries can often help expose our idols. I don't worry about things that I don't care about, that I have no interest in. I'm not busy uh, worrying about uh, how uh, the England rugby team are going to be doing in the World Cup because I don't love them. I don't, I don't want them to do well. Um, but there are things that I do worry about, that I do love, and that will cause me to worry if they don't go well. But let me tell you this morning, our list of worries will expose our idols. We want security. We want to be well thought by of others. We want power. We want wealth. We want enjoyment. We want authority over decisions. And these things are not necessarily sinful things. But none of them are promised to us from God. And if we want them more than anything else in the world, and we cannot control whether we receive them or not, there's no surprise that we will want so what are we to do? What does Paul say here? Well, he presents this wonderful contrast. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. You might just roll your eyes and think, yeah, just pray about it. You'll stop worrying. The whole, the whole thing will be fine. Sounds too simple. But think about it. If you entrust God... Uh, knowing that everything is, is in his control, knowing that nothing happens without his knowledge, knowing that everything that happens to his children is going to ultimately end up for their good, as confusing as it may be at the time, we can take great comfort and confidence in knowing that God holds everything together in his grasp through hardship through sickness, through loneliness, through poverty, you name it, God is with us. This is the peace that allowed Jesus to be calm in the storm. This is the peace that allowed Jesus to head towards Jerusalem when he was facing his own death. The prescription for a life without worry is prayer. Now don't get me wrong, there are loads of other things that we can do to help with our worries. We can, we can talk to people. Uh, we can take medication. We can sleep better. We can exercise. We can uh, eat better. But if we really and truly want to have a looser grip on the things of this world, none of those things are going to help us. We require the Lord Jesus. We need prayer. What Paul is speaking about here is supernatural. Paul makes mention of, of four dip, different types of prayer. He says prayer, supplication, thanksgivings, and requests. And all these things overlap. But what Paul wants to show us really is that by letting everything in front of God, 
by, by thanking him for who he is and for uh, what he has done for us, all that he is doing for us right now and that for all the things that he is about to do for us in the future. As we ask for things and as we plead for things, we will start to desire the same things that he desires. And as we communicate with God in prayer, we will begin to worry less about things that don't truly matter in eternity. So the two things that Paul's mentioned here, rejoicing always and never worrying, they are two impossible things. And if if you're not a believer here this morning, those two things are impossible for you to find. But for those who know the Lord Jesus as their saviour, They can be found. Those two things are entwined. The joyful person is not an anxious person. The one who speaks to the Heavenly Father and casts their burdens upon him will ultimately be joyful. In my youth, I've told you about my my, uh, talking and lectures. I I wish that were the only uh, mistake I made in my life. And there's many. One of my summers back from university... Uh, my school friends and I decided that as a uh, prank, we would dress up one of my uh, Iranian friends up as a, as a sheikh, and uh, we would go to Harrods. And uh, two of us would dress up as bodyguards, and the other one would dress up as a translator. And uh, we walked into this, this posh department store, and uh, we managed to convince the people there that we were very important people. And uh, uh, my friend was... was uh, was able to try on uh, jewellery that was worth tens of thousands of pounds. Um, But our our plan fell to pieces. Uh, Because if you had all the money in the world, why would you hire someone as as, uh, as pathetic as me as your bodyguard? Uh, That's what tipped them off. Um, A guard needs to be someone strong, needs to be brave to withstand any opposition. and, And that certainly wasn't me. And so we were turfed out. And told never to come back again. I have been back since, but they don't know that. Um, But verse 7 tells us that uh, we will have our hearts guarded. Our hearts will be guarded and our minds will be guarded from the anxiety and the worries of this life. What is it that will guard us? Well, it's the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. That will guard your hearts and minds. And and Paul can't write for too long without making some sort of military analogy. He says that the peace of God will guard us. And this is not a a scrawny, I used to be very scrawny, I'm not so scrawny anymore, but uh, this is not an easy to get past bodyguard. This This is the comfort and the safety of knowing that we are guarded beyond whatever our greatest fear may be. You see, in in defeating Sin and death, the Lord Jesus has guarded us from the things that could separate us from eternal life with him. If we are in Christ, then we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. If he has a hold of us, then whatever we may face in this world, whatever we may face, then nothing can take, away, take us away from him. Whatever is going on in your family life, Whatever is going on in your workplace, whatever is going on in school, whatever is, is, uh, is bugging you, your, your health concerns, whatever it might be, tell Jesus about them. Let your requests be made known to him. Uh, tell the Father, he will guard you 
until you safely reach the heavenly city where you are headed. And thirdly and finally, uh, let's think of, of peace in practice. We've dealt with peace in the church. Uh, we've seen how uh, we can have peace in our hearts and our minds. Uh, but let's look at how we can practically have peace. Uh, what things can we do in order to, to live lives of peace? Um, the, the main way in which Eastern religions have influenced our societies today is through uh, meditation and mindfulness and, and other such techniques and that have become commonplace in, in normal life. And uh, you may know people who practice yoga or mindfulness and maybe your workplaces have encouraged you to try it. And the key thing in these practices is to get you to empty your mind, to, to declutter, to de-stress, to reach this transcendent state where you have taken all the worries of this life out. But the Christian approach to true peace is not through taking things out, but what we put into our minds. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. In these verses, uh, Paul wants them to begin to value and to begin to dwell on things which fit those categories. Uh, The main reason those verses were written was not about what the Philippine church was watching, was listening to, or what they were reading. And that is often the exclusive realm with which these verses are applied to. But it it cannot be the case. Uh, The first readers of this letter uh, were the first century church. And so we can confidently say that this verse is not predominantly about what we watch on Netflix. And yes, it may extend to what media we consume. But this verse needs to serve a far bigger purpose. It needs to be a posture for how we interact with other believers. Think of 1 Corinthians 30. It talks about love. And it talks about how we we love others in the church. And it tells us to believe the best in others. And we can use these verses here to see the things that are true and that are lovely and just and pure in other people. It's a filter with which we should see others through. And this verse can be as a biblical guidance for how to make decisions regarding issues or matters on which the Bible is is otherwise silent. You see, the Bible doesn't provide us with an exact answer to every possible that we have. Some things are left unspoken. So verses 8 and 9 in Philippians 4 are a great help to us in our decision making. When we don't know what to do, we can ask ourselves, is this thing true? Is this thing honourable, commendable, pure, beautiful, worthy of praise? And notice, there aren't negative statements there. If we fervently seek the positive, we will invariably weed out the negative. So instead of asking whether an activity or an event or a book or a job or a TV show or an app, instead of asking what's wrong with it, ask, is there anything that is right with it? And these are all things that we should be practising and notice that all these words can be used to describe the Lord Jesus. He is true, isn't he? He is honourable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. We, as believers, become like what we worship. And our minds become like what we think about. And if we fill our minds with 
lies and injustice and ugliness and sordidness, then it won't just stay in our minds, it will play out in how we live. So dwell on the things that remind us of Christ. I'm not going to make specific suggestions, but we need to prayerfully ask for wisdom and discernment about the things that we let into our minds before we find lasting peace. So is your life as peaceful as you'd like it to be? Mine isn't. And my guess is that there are stresses and strains which are probably distracting you even now. Things that are strangling you and denying peace with God. Let me read you some words from a a blog written by Alexandra, a a lady living in Ukraine. She said this, "Uh, This week I experienced the biggest explosion so far. A part of a missile landed just 200 yards from my house. All that day I spoke to people in my neighborhood. How can you be so calm and have peace in your heart? They said, you can't prepare for things like this. And it's true, I can't change the war, but I can prepare my heart to not be shaken. I read Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. These are words I say to myself every day and they strengthen me. Without the refuge that is Jesus and his word, I would crumble. When fear comes, when anxiety comes, when people tell you there's no God, what helps me is preaching to my own heart. It's so important to to replace the lies that the world tells you. No matter what I feel, I speak God's truth to my heart and mind. That night, as the bombs kept coming, I was not afraid because God's word came to me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh is secure. It's an amazing testimony, isn't it? And that is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace that causes the whole neighborhood to ask, how? What are you doing? How is that possible? Well, it's beyond human reasoning, isn't it? And let us pray that we would have that very same feeling, that same peace in our lives.